for our friends in Germany, das Wetter ist warm und sonnig mit Temperatur 20 Celsius. Wir vermissen du. Okay, it's time to start. Uh, you all found us. Isn't it beautiful out today? Yeah, it's a nice relief, isn't it? Let's go ahead and start class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We pray that your uh, spirit will be with us and join us, and we pray that our conversations will uh, be to your glory and honor. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're uh, doing lesson number 10 in our quarterly, Jesus Wept, the Bible and Human Emotions, and the uh, lesson title for this week is Jealousy. And so I thought let's start with, uh, with Sunday's lesson, At the Root uh, of Evil, or Where Did Jealousy Begin? So where did jealousy begin? I hear people saying Satan in heaven. It's Lucifer. Right, Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned in the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And of course, this is referring to Lucifer. What do you hear in this text as the problem? Pardon? Self, I, I, I. Yep, uh, there's no question. Self is at the center. Do you hear another problem that maybe even under, undergirds that problem? Jealousy and envy. Jealousy and envy, no question about it. Jealousy and envy, no question about it. What do you think would, in a universe in which there is no sin yet, what would, what would lead Lucifer, do you think? Now, of course, there's a, we, we won't know the ultimate solution because there's a mystery here that we can't understand. But I, I'm going to suggest to you that there was a misunderstanding in Lucifer's understanding about God. Notice what it says here. The last, last phrase in verse 14, it says, I will make myself like the Most High. Now think that through. Can a created being make themselves like God? Number one. Number two, if he were really going to be like God, what would he do? What, would his, what, what behaviors would he take? What actions would his behavior show? I mean, Philippians says, Jesus, who did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself into the form of a servant all the way down to the, to the cross, right? So if he were to be like God, would he have been seeking to, uh, to, to promote himself higher and higher, or would he have been more and more humble and, and selfless? So when he says, I'm going to be like God, doesn't that kind of imply when we look at his behavior that somehow in his thinking, he, didn't, he, he got distorted in his thinking about God? He saw God in some way other than God really is. I'm going to suggest that as a possibility. And in our third paragraph of Sunday's lesson, it states the following. Satan was jealous of Jesus. He wished to be consulted concerning the formation of man. And because he was not, he was filled with envy, jealousy, and hatred. He desired to receive the highest honors in heaven next to God. Did you all have that kind of insight before that, that really he wasn't after the Father's position, he was after Jesus' position in heaven? And he used the position of, of Jesus and Lucifer as a wedge to cause uncertainty and doubt in the minds of the other angels. How could he do that? Yeah, lies, of course, but, but what, what would enable him? I mean, if... if um, <clears throat> He wasn't being treated fairly. If Jesus could do things, he should be. Well, this is what his allegation where he wasn't be treated fairly, but why did that have any credibility with the angels in heaven? Yes. He was seeking only something that seemed fair. He was seeking something that seemed fair. What, but why would that have any credibility with the angels in heaven? Yes. If Christ was an angel to angels, or a representative of God to the angels, then... Christ was perceived as something different than God the Father. Ah, okay. We're going to explore that issue. Yes, Linda. And Satan was trusted by the angels. He was always always one of the people who conveyed information from God. And he was 
next to God, so to speak. And so they really trusted him. So let's put these two elements together. Number one, Satan has no history of evil. So the angels looking at the life experience with Lucifer up to that point have only a being that has been kind, gracious, loving up to this point, And he's completely trustworthy. So he's coming from a position where they trust him. And then the other position that, that Wendell suggested is that what did Christ manifest himself? What, what form did Christ manifest himself in prior to his incarnation as a human being? In the form of an angel. Now, he wasn't an angel. He was God. But he chose to manifest himself in the form of an angel. Why? What was the purpose of doing that? Connection. Well, it says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God lives in, in what? 1 Timothy 6.16, God lives in unapproachable light. Unapproachable light. What does that mean, unapproachable? That God is, is aloof, that God is unloving, he's, he's an elitist, he's, uh, he doesn't care for people, he, puts up, he just puts walls up. Is that what that means? What's it mean? He lives in unapproachable light. Why can't we go there? Because God doesn't want us there? It's too painful. I mean, it's too against who the being is. Well, for sinners, that would be true. I'm going to suggest that he's infinite, right? And all created beings are finite. Even the most elevated created being of Lucifer, he's still not infinite. So how big a gap is there between infinity, God, who's, who's all-knowing, infinite, all-powerful, and this created being Lucifer? There's still an infinite gap, right? Unapproachable. Unapproachable. He cannot approach there. So, God lives in unapproachable light. So if God wants to have the, intimus, the most intimate connection with his creatures, if the creatures can't approach where he is, then what does he do? He goes to where they are. And so Jesus was the member of the Godhead who was always stepping down to meet his creatures where they are. And so I suggest, and the scriptures will support this if you want evidence for this, Exodus chapter 3, when it says that, um, Moses talked to God in the burning bush. If you read the account, it says that God spoke to Moses from the bush. It also says that the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses from the bush. Uh, this is confirmed in Acts chapter 7 where Stephen reports the same thing. It says that in Thessalonians that when the Lord comes, he will come with the voice of the archangel, which raises the dead. Well, who is it that has the keys of, of, of death? Christ. So Christ uh, manifested himself in the form of an angel. Now, did Christ, in his incarnation, do such a good job of being human that human beings failed to recognize he was God? Is it possible he was such a good angel and so humble and so selfless that this opened the opportunity for Lucifer to create lies and say there's no difference between Lucifer the created? Do you know in, the, in Timothy where it says Jesus is the bright morning star? The, uh, the Greek there is the Greek word phosphorus. We get that bright burning metal, phosphorus, to burn brightly, bright morning star. Latin translation of that word is Lucifer. Lucifer, which means a bright and shining light, to shine uh, the bright light. And Jesus, of course, is the light which lightens all men. And so, interestingly enough, the scripture gives Lucifer, the created being, and Jesus, a shared name, the light. And so we have the created being, Lucifer. We have the Son of God who humbles himself to be in the form of an angel, who is also the light shining the truth about God. And I think this is what Lucifer looked over and said, hey, it's not fair that Jesus gets to go into these conversations with the infinite one, and I get left here. Now, interesting, one more point, I'm going to come to you, Russell. I think part of the answers to, to these allegations that Lucifer made was, was in the creation of mankind. In the creation of mankind, God creates a new, new creation where two separate beings come into the unity of one, give of themselves in love, have the power to procreate, a very godlike power. They've been given dominion to rule over a, a, a territory, very godlike, to, to govern in love as God designed the universe. And then, in this, in this conversation, Adam and Eve, let's say they're in the garden and they're planning something. And they're having conversations about what they want to do. Why do they not include the elephant and the lion and the tiger in those conversations? Are they selfish? Are they egotistical? Are they arrogant? Are they prideful? Are they, are they uh, selective? Or is it because, as much as they love the, the tiger and the elephant and the dog and the cat and so forth, that 
those animals have nothing to contribute to this conversation. They can't participate on that level. Well, this is an analogy, I think, a lesson, an object lesson, as to why Lucifer was excluded to these conversations. I'm going to suggest the gap between an animal and us is much narrower, much closer than the gap between Lucifer and God. That gap's much bigger. Would you agree? Yes, and so this is a lesson that helps understand why God excluded Lucifer. It's not because God didn't want him to participate. Lucifer couldn't participate on that level. Now, Russell. I've been fascinated by the timing of this, uh, this statement from Ellen White's early writings, in that they were planning the creation of mankind, and yet it, that, that, was what, that was prior to open rebellion in heaven. Right. It, it was, this is what actually caused the plant of the seeds of jealousy, or, or Satan allowed the seeds of jealousy to be planted. So what does it, what does it say about God that he would... He would plan this accordingly, knowing full well what would happen ahead of time. Hey, what does it say? There's two arguments on that. One, people say, well, he doesn't really know the future. Right. He just uh, you know, does his best, rolls the dice, hope things turn out well. The other is, he knows the future, but he doesn't use that information <laughs> manipulatively or to change his choices, because his choices are always healthy, loving, other-centered, and beneficent. And he's still going to do what he's going to do, even though he knows we might abuse the privileges he gives us. I, I take the latter view that, that God knows, and it doesn't, and He doesn't divert from the course of action that He's on because He knows we might abuse the, cor- the, the freedoms He gives us. Yeah. Yes. Realizing that the um, desert tabernacle was a object lesson, the Ark of the Covenant kind of represents the throne of God to us. There's two angels over the Ark. One would then be Christ, and one would the, then be the arch, the other archangel. Yeah, I, I think metaphorically we could we could learn some lessons in that. Yeah, this is where it all began. This is where it all comes to resolution and conclusion too. Yeah, all, all brought back into atonement, the atonement seat. You know, a unit at one, bringing things back into oneness and unity. Yeah. So, um, fourth paragraph says. Um, by contrast, as we look to Jesus, the inception of sin through jealousy and selfishness is rebuffed by Jesus' willingness to be humbled to the lowest level of humankind and be killed like a criminal in order that each person may be saved from the ultimate devastation caused by sin. Did you hear what that said? That, by contrast, we look to Jesus, the inception of sin through jealousy and selfishness is rebuffed by Jesus' willingness to be humbled. Is the lesson suggesting that Jesus came to reveal the truth about God to destroy the lies of Satan and win us back to trust? I, I think that's exactly what he came to do, and that's what the lesson's telling us. And I agree with it. Yes, he came to reveal that Satan lied about God. And thus we see the, the passages in 2 Corinthians 10 through 5 that the war we wage has divine weapons to demolish everything that sets itself up against. The knowledge of God. It centers on God's knowledge. Romans 1, when we exchange the truth of God for a lie, the mind becomes darkened and depraved and futile. John 17, life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ is now sent. It all centers on the true knowledge of God. And then the bottom green section says, Lucifer did not look at what he had. Instead, he chose to contemplate what Christ had. How often do we tend to do similar things? Uh, uh, to do something similar. How much jealousy and envy do you harbor for those who have more than you? How can you overcome this dangerous emotion? Thoughts about that? Is it wrong to look at what others have? No, it's not wrong to look. It's not wrong to look? You're right. It's wrong to covet it. It's wrong to covet it. Well, what happens when when Paul says that uh, we we covet the best gifts? The best gifts come from God. And, and we should covet those. Yeah. Love, kindness. Yes. So, when we look to others, what happens when Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Doesn't that require we're looking at others? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. When, when we try to be like Christ, aren't we trying to assimilate the good things we see in his character into ours? But that's the good things to look at. Yeah. The good things to look at. Right. Good things to covet. Yes, yes, like that new Mercedes? No, not the new Mercedes, okay, no, the BMW. No, no in Chattanooga, it's the Volkswagen, right? 
Those things are going to vanish. They're going to be done away with. But the, the things that you covet that God has will stay with you forever. I don't think the problem is actually looking and appreciating what others have, even in talents and abilities. I think you've said it right. The problem is when we actually envy and wish we had those things and are not satisfied with the position we have in God's cause. That's the real danger. But as parents, how many parents in here have seen their children develop and grow and, and succeed in some element or aspect of their life, and you watched that and you rejoiced in that? You observed it. You, you, you looked at it and you were happy for that. There was no envy. It was joy. Isn't that how it's supposed to be for each of us as Christian brothers and sisters? We rejoice in the successes of each other. Monday's lesson, first paragraph. It says, so often jealousy and envy arise among those with whom we are very close. And of course, this week's lesson, this day's lesson is talking about Joseph and Joseph's family. Um, and it says, which we are very close, which makes the potential for serious consequences even more devastating. Indeed, a large portion of aggression, physical or psychological, today is found within the family circle. And jealousy and rivalry between family members is so often at the root. Have you ever seen that in a family? Yeah, how does it how do you see it? How does it come out? What kind of things are, are are flags when you hear it of hey, that's jealousy going on? It's not fair. Why does he get to and I don't? She can, why can't I? Uh, you let them. Haven't you heard this from your kids? Well, what was Lucifer's complaint in heaven? It's not fair. Michael gets to go to the why does he get to and I don't? Isn't this the exact complaint? So a question to you guys as parents. Should we treat our children the same? Only if your children are the same. Oh, excellent, Russell. Only if your children are the same. And they're not. Our children have different temperaments, different personalities, different attitudes, different strengths, different weaknesses. If you had a child with diabetes... And your other children don't have diabetes, would you, would you, would they all eat the same diet? Or, or would the one with the diabetic have to eat something different? Type 1 diabetic. No, he would have to get some insulin. The others wouldn't, no matter what they eat. You would treat them differently. How about as we move to help our children develop Christ-like character, we recognize the strengths and weaknesses of their character. Do we discipline them all the same? Or do some children respond differently to different forms of discipline? Yes. So if we love the kids, we have the same motive and heart for them all, but we don't treat them all the same, do we? No. So when they say it's not fair, uh, exactly, I say it's not about uh, you know, being fair, it's about being what's, doing what's right. And so tell, the, tell your children that, uh, that you love them enough to give them their own individualized parenting plan. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's true. You're not going to treat them just like everyone else, a cookie-cutter parenting plan with thoughtless. And no, you're going, to, you're going to do what's right. Yeah. Also, that child that has the diabetes, it costs more money. And it might take money to make that child healthy. That deprives the other children for something they need. So that causes a conflict, too. She says that when you have a sick child, you might take resources away from the healthy kids to, to provide for the needs of the sick kid, and that could be a source of conflict. Would that be a source of conflict if everyone loved each other? No. It's only if somebody is thinking of self and not thinking of the welfare of the other. Like, that's not fair. You've got to buy their medicine. I'll get my toy this week. So they're thinking about self. But if you think, oh, no, it's, it's for their good, it's okay. See, it's, 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 love makes the difference, doesn't it? Think about what happens when somebody dies. What happens to the families after that in the forms of jealousy and greed and so on. You mean when the, at the settling of the estate? Right. Yeah, yeah, boy, that can get ugly, can it? It can get ugly. What about the cruelty? You think about the cruelty of Joseph's brothers? Not just to Joseph. Parents. Think about what they did to their dad. I mean, how, I mean, think of the cruelty there to come home and tell Dad his son is dead. Yeah. But, you know, when you read the whole story from the very beginning, in a way you can't help but blame the father a little bit because of the partiality he showed towards Joseph from the very beginning. Even as a father, especially with all the kids he had, when he saw how the other kids were responding to Joseph because of the way he was treating him, even though he might have loved Joseph more, he shouldn't have been so expressive of it in what he did. 
calls this with his sons. Let's take that and let's 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 play the uh, let's play the other side of that uh, position. Which of the sons of Jacob were actually uh, appreciative of Jacob's God? Which were the sons of Jacob actually practice godly methods? Which 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 ones? Joseph. But are you saying we're supposed to love the kids more that are good than those that? Do you are think that Jacob actually, in his heart, loved more, or was able to? Pro- I mean, if you think about God's blessings in our lives, what is it that prevents God from giving us more blessings? His restrictive heart. He loves you more than he loves me. So you know, if you and so you get more blessings than I get because he loves you more and he plays partiality. Or is it that our maturity level and our our disharmony with his methods and principles limit what he can do for us because we would injure ourselves. When your kids are growing up, and let's say you're wealthy, and your kids are 17, 18, 19, uh, can you always just bestow on them great wealth at that age? Why can't you? Will they, will they, will they injure themselves with that? If you look at, at the brothers there, was Joseph actually much more in harmony with taking his blessings and trying to understand and fulfill God's will, where the other kids were way more worldly focused? So they were, Joseph put himself in a position to be more uh, able to receive the affection, instruction, uh, conversation. Do you think that if the other brothers came back and wanted to sit in the tent with Dad one evening and have a conversation, that Dad said, I don't have time for you? Seems like Joseph was actually more available to spend time with Dad than the others were. Yes. Christ had 12 disciples, and yet one was called the Beloved. And, and, and we have an explanation for that. What was the explanation? That Christ actually preferred him more? What was the explanation? <laughs> he was younger and more receptive. There you have it. It was, the, it was the condition of John's heart that made him more in tune with Christ than Christ having a preference for John over the others. And that's what I'm suggesting is the same thing in Joseph's life. Joseph's heart was much more tuned with his father's than the others were, and that's where the separation came. But, and then the others, because of, that, uh, because of the guilt in their own conscience, because of the stuff they do, I mean, look, they were stealing from dad, slaughtering the animals they weren't supposed to be doing, all the stuff they weren't supposed to be doing, that brings guilt and conviction. That puts up a barrier. They can't feel close. They don't want to go in and spend time with that. He might say, what'd you do? Hey, what happened to that sheep that got lost? It's going to expose their misdeeds. So they are distanced. And now they see Joseph isn't distant, they become jealous and envious. I'm going to suggest it doesn't lie as much with, with Jacob as it does with the sin in their hearts. Yes? In a way, I do agree. Joseph and Benjamin were Rachel's children. That's true. Joseph and Benjamin, yep, I understand that. And they were automatically, because of that, because Joseph loved Rachel so much more. And also, you know, I've read stories, where, and, and, and actually, if you read the story, it does come across that Joseph was a bit spoiled, and he did kind of lord that over his brothers a bit. And young- that, that's one way to read it. Yes? Another side of the picture here. Tell us about it. Not have anything to do with it, but it's kind of interesting. Wasn't Jacob's mother the same mother that played favoritism to him to gain a birthright? Was that the same Jacob? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was some, maybe some innate programming or whatever to view things a little bit differently. Just a different view. Yeah, but that was also, if I'm not mistaken. See, where in this process, where in this process does Jacob wrestle with God and have a change of heart and be called Israel? Yeah, where is, where is Joseph at that time? Is he born yet? How old is he? Yeah, I don't know how old he is at that point, do you? No, I don't either. So it'd be interesting because I do think there, there were these definite, he was the deceiver, he was looking out for himself, always angling for self, and there was this definite character issue. But do we see something change in him after his experience with God? And does he, does, would that affect his parenting after that point? But, but also, you know, we do have evidence in, in Scripture, in fact, in, in, even in Genesis, of the sins of the father being visited on the children. You remember, we also saw the same thing with Abraham, I, Isaac, you know, and, and all the way through that, you know, she's my sister. You know, and, again, and, and every generation it got a little worse. Again, couldn't this be much the same thing with Jacob? Yes, he had been the favored child when he was growing up over his brother Esau, and, and he had stolen the birthright. Then, you know, Joseph being... Abraham again, being the favorite of, of a larger number, and in, in some respect, stealing the birthright, because actually Reuben... Was, was you see how hard we argue to try to excuse the evil in the brothers? <laughs> you see how hard it is? We want to make room where it's okay for them to be jealous. 
It was their dad's fault. It's okay. Dad, dad set him up for this. I didn't say it was all dad's fault. I said he helped to contribute towards it. I'm not saying he was the cause of all of his sons. No, it's, it wouldn't be. You know, it's, it's not all the, all their fault. But dad's it, dad's got to be cul- you know, culpable in this as well. The kids can't be really as adult children responsible for their own choices and actions. Remember, these weren't these weren't 12, 13, 14 year old adolescent kids that did this. These were adult men who did this to their brother. Isn't that right? Weren't they adult men when they did this? Yes. Well, actually, Reuben didn't want to do this. He was, and he was the oldest. Yes, and there, and there we have, there we have Reuben, who didn't want to do it, and he was such a such a, a bastion of saintliness that he stood up and and uh, yes. And what was it? Was it Reuben who had sex with Dad's wife? Yes. Okay. Okay. Come on. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've got problems in this family. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we got problems in this family. And what does it tell us about God, though? See, this is what's beautiful. You look at the defects of character in all these people. And you see God's grace still. God loves them. God still works with them. It's their behavior is not dependent on God. Doesn't doesn't change God's attitude towards them. He's only interested in their welfare and their redemption. Same with us. Same with us. All right, let's. We got some really good stuff. There's another hand uh, back there. Okay. All righty. Um, it's a fourth paragraph. It says, um, but Joseph's attitude could not be more noble, for he said. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Joseph had understood that his duty was to forgive the offenders and trust in God's mercy and justice. Question. Do you think Joseph acted correctly in forgiving his brothers? Do you think he acted correctly in forgiving them outright? Or should he have demanded some type of recompense, some type of payment for the years of slavery that he went? Should he have demanded that they bring some offering to appease him in some way? Well, if Joseph wouldn't demand that, then are you saying Joseph is more forgiving than God? Why do we say that God needs to be appeased or a payment has to be made or some blood price has to be achieved in order for God to forgive us? Are we suggesting that Joseph is more forgiving than God? No, but he did do a little bit there by keeping Benjamin. Yes. Uh, did he? See, this is again, how do we interpret what he did? Was he, was he in any way causing a payment, an appeasement, or to do anything to assuage or, or deal with him? Or was he merely, uh, because he is not infinite and can't read hearts and minds, testing to see whether his brothers were truly sincere and have changed? This wasn't an appeasement. He was already forgiving towards them, but he wanted to know whether his brothers could be trusted. It's true. And he couldn't tell because he doesn't have the ability to read the hearts and minds. So I don't think that was any type of an appeasement issue. You've got you've to make payment. You've got to make recompense. There was nothing of that, of that nature, was there? No. Yes. Yeah, but, but God isn't pleased by the blood of the sacrifices. But, but we know from Hebrews that without the, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Again, what does that tell us? That's not appeasement. I think God is testing us to see if we're willing to do... What does that tell us? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Historically, in traditional Christian theology, it tells us that God could not forgive without the shedding of blood. No, no. That's what it tells us. And even in the NIV version, it doesn't say, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. The NIV says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Is that what, really what it means? That Christ's blood was necessary for God to be able to forgive, to earn forgiveness, to merit forgiveness, to achieve forgiveness? Um, have you heard things like expiation? Yes. Propitiation? Yes. Yes, and this is put together with fancy theological terms to suggest that Jesus shed his blood to appease the angry wrath of the Father. How many have heard that Jesus stands between us and the Father to hold back the wrath? Uh, is Joseph more forgiving than God? No. No. Where did Joseph, in fact, get a heart of forgiveness? From God. Okay? So, I would never suggest, and be very clear, that we could be saved without the death of Christ. Not possible. Christ's death was necessary. 100% necessary. It just wasn't necessary to get God to be forgiving. It wasn't necessary for that purpose. That purpose was never in issue. God was forgiving, and he sent the Son as his medium, his vehicle, his conduit, his ambassador, his agency, to achieve what was necessary to save mankind. The, the Son was carrying out the Father's purposes and will on earth. For God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. The fullness of the God had dwelled in the Son bodily. For God so loved the world, he sent his only Son, gave his only Son. So this idea that Christ died to achieve for, uh, forgiveness or to merit forgiveness is a distortion that comes from human court systems and mechanisms. We have taken our, our way of dealing with, with criminals and we have projected it onto the heavenly government and we look at God running a, a, a universe the way we run one here on earth. It's very distorted. Scriptures tell us, that all the, all the 
prophetic imageries of human governments are ferocious animals. But Jesus is represented by a lamb. There is no earthly government that represents how God runs his universe. It's distorted when we try and do that. So, do you all agree with me that God is more forgiving than Joseph? And as Joseph didn't need to be appeased in order to forgive, neither did God. But Christ needed to come, and we're not going to go into why, but he needed to come. It was necessary. The, uh, the lesson alluded in, in Sunday's lesson to part of why he came, to destroy the, the lies, to reveal the truth, the witness to trust. That's part of the reason he came. Um, what happens in your attitude towards God if you believe Jesus did, in fact, have to die in order to get God to forgive? Does that affect your attitude towards God? Has anyone ever, sometime in their Christian journey, actually thought those things? I see some heads nodding. Yeah. Did, did it enhance your trust and confidence in God when you believe that? Or did it undermine it? Let's jump to Thursday's lesson, because we have some fun stuff in Thursday's lesson. And if we have time, we'll come back to, to uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. It talks about jealousy towards Jesus. Jealousy towards Jesus. When Jesus was on earth as a human, were there people who were jealous of him? Was it the common people? Who were the people who were jealous of Jesus, primarily? Was it the Roman leadership? Were they primarily jealous of Jesus? No. No. Was it the Samaritans who were jealous of Jesus? No. Was it the sick and the, and the poor? No. No. Who was jealous of Jesus? The church leaders. Now think that through. How could this be? How could those people who have dedicated their life to studying scripture, to, who, who are religious leaders, who are theologians, how could these people be jealous of Jesus? How could that happen? They were afraid of their positions, of Christ uh, taking over, and they'd be out. Yes. I think that's the difference, too. John the Baptist was studying the scriptures, and Ellen White says that he was not correct in his understanding of them either. But when Jesus came to show, you know, what it was all about, he was accepting of it. Whereas the leaders were, oh, wait, then I have been teaching wrong, and I'm more, they were more interested in their position. Oh, wait, 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 no, I like what you're saying very much. He had a hard attitude, which says, hey, I don't claim to know everything. I'm a finite being. Uh, God's infinite. There's a lot more I need to understand. I am open to follow the evidence, follow the truth, where the truth leads. Show me where my, my thoughts are incorrect. Show me where my understandings need to be uh, tuned up. And, I, and as I understand that, I want to follow the truth. He's a lover of truth. As Thessalonians describes, those who are lost are lost because they did not love the truth. Now, the, the religious leaders, on the other hand, did they have that attitude of humble willingness to listen and learn? Or did they have the attitude of, we are the authority? How dare this man who hasn't been to our schools, ha- he hasn't gone to our seminary, how does someone who has not seminary trained come along and actually suggest that they actually know any Bible truth? They're supposed to learn from us. You have to get our stamp of approval. You have to go along with our letters of credit on your resume. And then you can go out and you can then tell people to think. Until then, how dare you suggest you know anything about the gospel? But we don't see any of that today. <laughs> Do you see that happening? They already knew the truth, so they weren't open to learn truth. But everybody had a wrong impression of what Jesus was about. Even his twelve disciples, even right up to the time he, he was he, he was killed, uh, they thought that he was going to overthrow the Romans. I mean, and Judas was the only one who acted out on that. Where did the disciples get that idea? Were they born genetically wired with that idea? The misinterpretation of scripture. Where did they get the misinterpretation of scripture? From the religious leaders. <laughs> okay, it was their religious leaders that taught them this distorted idea. And of course, the difference between them and the religious leaders is the same as John the Baptist. Even though they had the misunderstanding in their minds, their hearts were still wanting to know what was true. They were willing to be led. They were willing to be taught. They were willing to evaluate the evidence. They were willing to still think and to reason. And, 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 and that's why their hearts weren't closed to the truth. Yeah. Except Judas. Except for Judas, of course. Yeah, Judas wasn't willing to be led. Okay. Well, listen to this. Um, one of the, uh, uh, one of the uh, professors here in the community told me something a few years ago that I thought was quite valuable. He said, as we press forward in the truth, we want to be sure we don't go so far we fall off an edge. Does that make sense? How do we prevent ourselves from falling off an edge? Are there any anchors? Are there any anchors that we can hold to that while we push forward in the truth prevent us from falling off an edge? How do we define where the edge is? Let's see if we can't figure that out. I'm not sure if we can find the edge um, because, because if we're actually f- pursuing in the right path of truth, 
there never comes an end to our learning. So we never come to a place there's more, not more to learn. But can we discover uh, some anchors that keep us from going into a ditch on the right or to the left? And that's what I want to throw at you today. And so um, this is out of Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 66. In the study of the sciences also, we are to obtain a knowledge of the Creator. All true science is but an interpretation of the handwriting of God in the material world. Science being from her research only, excuse me, science brings from her research only fresh evidences of the wisdom and power of God. Rightly understood, both the book of nature and the written word make us acquainted with God by teaching us something of the wise and beneficent laws through which he works. And then education, page 130. Rightly understood, both the revelation of science and the experiences of life are in harmony with the testimony of Scripture to the constant working of God and man. So, do we hear... What do we hear in these two passages? Do we hear the idea that rightly understood, our understanding of science and Scripture and our experience will always harmonize? Do we understand that? Does that give us more than Scripture to evaluate in understanding the truth? Do we need to bring in our understanding of science and experience with Scripture? So think this through. If a person studies science divorced from, separated from Scripture, no Scripture, just science, is there a danger of going over an edge? What edge has often gone over when you do that? The edge of evolutionism, godlessness, humanism. Isn't this the edge we go over when we study science? Well, is there a danger on the opposite shore studying scripture divorced from science and experience yes. that we go into the ditch of false theology. So I'm going to tell you in my conversations, um, uh, this was one of the things I presented, these passages and others like it, and I was confronted by not all, but, but at least one particular individual who was vehemently opposed to this idea as a theologian. We are to study scripture and scripture only. We cannot bring science and we cannot bring nature nor our experience into our understanding of truth. Only scripture. Now why do you think a theologian might prefer that? He doesn't trust science for himself. Doesn't trust science. That's what a theologian knows. Is it possible if you divorce the scripture from the testable laws of nature? No. If, is, if, is it possible if you do that, you can then make scripture say anything you want? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. It's kind of like the old saying, you know, it's the only tool you have to hammer everything begins to look like a nail. <laughs> yes. That's good. Yes. It's interesting. I was just reading this morning about a man that um, was studying cells, and he was doing stem cell research, and everything was cellular, and he was more, he didn't believe in God, and he went through a midlife crisis, and he went out in nature, and all of a sudden it was like, wait, all these cells interact, all these cells are important. So instead of being focused, and it, it's like he said, somebody had to create all this. So it was when he went, instead of just studying science, and he went into nature and got quiet and, and saw how everything worked together, that he found out about God. Nice, nice. Yeah, somebody in the back over there? I, I, I'm seeing a picture of all. There's three. We, have, we can't have the whole picture without all three aspects. That's kind of the same thing of God. But if we stick with one, that doesn't require faith. Uh, if we stick with one, it doesn't require faith? Not as much to put the whole picture together. I, I would say it doesn't. If you stick with, with one, you mean one of the evidentiary threads like Scripture divorced from yeah, science? Yeah. Yeah, I think that actually requires us to have more blind faith. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> More uninformed and uncertain faith. No, 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 just what I know. Yeah. Yeah, Russell. You know, also at the root of this this single-minded um, approach is the 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 fear of admitting that you're wrong. Yeah. Okay, and and that that goes back to heaven. Lucifer became convicted of his of the path that he was on, but he had gone so far down it that he didn't want to step up to the angels that had agreed with him and say, you know what, I was mistaken. How about the religious leaders in Christ's day? Exactly. Did they ever come to a point of conviction and knew they were wrong, but they wouldn't admit it? Yes. According to Desire of Ages, it's, it's true. They, they were convicted, and they, but they wouldn't admit it because pride forbade them. 
Okay, I think this is something we do run into. God's kingdom is not a theoretical kingdom. It's a real kingdom constructed with real elements and real molecules and real substance and real people and real intelligent beings. And if we reject two or three of the evidentiary threads and cling only to scripture, we become unanchored and go over theological edges of error. And I'm going to give, I'm going to give some more uh, quotes here, and then I want to go through some, some what I think are anchors that you can tie to as you move forward, and that will keep us from going over edges. Um, this is out of um, Christian Temperance, uh, page um, 109. Experience is said to be the best teacher. Genuine experience is indeed superior to mere thre- theoretical knowledge, but many have an erroneous idea of what constitutes experience. Real experience is gained by a variety of careful experiments made with the mind free from prejudice, uncontrolled by previously established opinions and habits. Wow. All right, before you can even do this, you've got to surrender your, your biases and prejudices, you've got to break free from old habits, and you've got to uh, not hold to, to precious opinions. In other words, you have to have an open mind to be willing to evaluate facts and evidence. Okay? It says, these, are res- these results are marked with careful solicitude and an anxious, anxious desire to learn, to improve, and to reform on every point that is not in harmony. Get this. Not in harmony with physical and moral laws. How many of us approach our theology like this? This is the problem we have because theology has been divorced from the reality and the world in which we live. It's become theoretical. That which many term experience is not experience at all. It has resulted from mere habit or from a course of indulgence thoughtlessly and often ignorantly followed. There has not been a fair trial by actual experiment and thorough investigation with a knowledge of the principles involved in the action. Experience which is opposed to natural law, which is in conflict with the unchangeable principles of nature, is not to be relied upon. Uh, is that beautiful? Is that beautiful? Do you understand how much theology goes against this? How much theology is contrary to nature, contrary to the testable laws, contrary to the principles of God's government? On this one is, is 8 Testimonies 3.14. There is a science of Christianity to be mastered. A science of Christianity? A science as much deeper, broader, higher than any human science as the heavens are higher than the earth. The mind is to be disciplined, educated, trained, for we are to do service for God in ways that are in harmony with, that are not in harmony, not in harmony with inborn inclinations. There are hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil that must be overcome. This, this science, there's a science to it. Why do you think has anyone heard the statement, the medical, mis- the medical missionary work is to be the right arm of the gospel? Do you, do you know why? Well, listen to this. See if this helps us understand why. Every law governing the human system, every law governing the human system. Can anybody throw out real quick a law governing the human system? Respiration. Hydration. Laws of uh, pardon, law sleep. I mean, there are laws that govern our system. You break the laws, there's, there's trouble. Okay. Every law governing the human system is to be strictly regarded, for it is as truly a law of God as is the word of the Holy Writ. Did you hear that? Truly the law of God is the Holy Writ. I point this out to some theologians. They deny it. No. No. Only the Bible. Only the Bible. And every, every willful deviation from obedience to this law is as certainly sin as a violation of the moral law. All nature expresses the law of God, but it is our physical structure. But in our physical structure, Jehovah has written his law with his own finger upon every thrilling nerve, upon every living fiber, and upon every organ of the body. He's written his law. And you read that quote to these guys that disagree with you? Yep. That was out of Temperance 2.13. This is out of Our High Calling 2.66. Perfection of character cannot be attained when the laws of nature are disregarded. For this is transgression of the law of God. His law is written by his own finger upon every nerve, every muscle, every fiber of our being, every, upon every faculty which has been entrusted to man. These gifts are bestowed not to be abused and corrupted, but to be used in his honor and glory. The relation that exists between the mind and body is an intimate one. When one is affected, the other always more or less is in sympathy. Does that make sense to you? 
It's a law. I promise you, if you abuse your body, your brain will be affected. I promise you, if you believe lies, you will ruin your physical health. Just an uh, example I, I gave to some friends last night. Imagine you believe the lie that last night somebody snuck into your bedroom and injected you with HIV virus. It's not true, but you believe it happened last night. What do you th- how do you think you'd feel today? Would you, would you be distressed? Would you be anxious? Would you be worried? Would you have peace? Would you sleep well? Would, you, would your appetite be affected? I mean, you're going to start getting sick if you believe that happened. Yeah, you believe a lie, it'll, it'll, it'll hurt you. Okay, so, and there are some other quotes in here. Um, I think I'll read this one. It's this is out of uh, Signs of the Times, February 3, 1904. Christ came to the earth, came to this earth as he that serves. The angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation. Notice the, she's describing a principle of service, a principle of giving. And then she says this, this same law of service is written upon all things in nature. The same law written upon all things, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, the trees of the forest, the leaves, the grass, the flowers, the sun, in the heavens, the stars, all have their ministry. Lake and ocean, river, spring, each take in order to give. This is the principle. I mean, we've talked about this many times in here. This is how we have so. Here are the anchors. Let's talk about anchors we can use as we study theology, as we push forward to understand God. Are there anchors we can tie to that will keep us from going over edges on the left or the right? This is, this is what I think are some anchors. And you tell me if you agree or disagree. Jesus is the lens through which we understand God. Any doctrine of God that is contrary to what we see in the life of Jesus is wrong or misunderstood. Would you agree with that as an anchor? Yes. Okay, and, and put that anchor to use, use, guys, because there's a lot of theology that puts God up there in one way, and it's completely contradictory to what you see in Jesus. But Jesus, when Philip said, hey, show us the Father and it'll be enough. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Or in John 17, Jesus prays, Father, I've finished the work you've given me to do. I have made you known unto men. And if we use this as an anchor, it's gonna, it's gonna, a whole, you're going to find suddenly there's a whole bunch of things you've been taught that don't fit that anchor. A whole bunch of things. Saw a hand somewhere. Yes. Going back to John the Baptist, when he was in prison, he had doubts about Jesus' mission. Or if was this the one? Was I wrong? Did I go wrong somewhere? But he sent disciples to ask Jesus if he was the one. He didn't answer him right away. They spent all day with him, watching him heal people and teach and. Actually, that was the answer, wasn't it? Jesus said... So, that's the thing. So they came back, and he was... Oh, that was the revelation that he needed. And that's what Ellen White's trying to tell us, too, is that when you spend time studying the life of Christ, then you understand his mission. You understand him. It's it's going back to Jesus. And this is where the medical missionary part comes back. You see, the laws that I read read about that are written into the... Um, fibers of our being, when you study medical science as a healthcare practitioner, we understand we cannot get people well outside of the laws upon which life is built to operate. We're always working to bring people back in harmony with those laws. And that's where healing takes place. And understanding that principle, then it immediately allows our mind to expand to say, ah, this is not simply a physical reality, this is a spiritual reality too. That our mental and spiritual and heart well-being is, is based upon harmony with the laws that God constructed the universe to run upon. And just as when we break physical health laws, there's pain, suffering, and death as a consequence from being outside of the law uh, laws of health, so too we understand when we break God's moral law, there's a pain, suffering, and consequence of ultimate death that comes from being outside of the law he built life to operate upon. And we go away from this idea that when you break the law, oh, the patient comes to see the doctor who's, and the patient has, has slipped up and, and gone back to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. The doctor then, of course, in order to be just, must get out a belt and beat that patient. <laughs> Justice must be served, Right. Okay. No, does, does the doctor have to kill the patient? Even the non-compliant patient. You look at that relation. The patient won't comply, won't comply, won't comply, drinks uh, uh, two uh, liters of vodka every day, their liver is in failure, they're in the ICU, and they, and they still won't comply. Is the doctor ever become the executioner? Or is the doctor crying? How about if the, the, the alcoholic who the doctor is trying to save is the, is the firstborn son of the doctor? Does the doctor ever become the executioner? Does the doctor ever hate the patient? 
Is he doing everything he can to save him all day, all night long? Yet, if the, if the son continues to drink and abuse himself, won't he finally die from his own choices? That's sin, guys. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. And this devil wants us to completely misunderstand this and think, oh no, the problem's not with sin. It's not with drinking. You've got to understand, you've got to restrict dad. Your dad raised you not to drink, and he, and he put down rules. And if you break his rules, you know your dad's going to kill you. He's going to. I mean, that's what he's got to do. If he doesn't do it, then, this, then, then you know, his home will be in chaos, and, and it'll be unjust, and, and you know your dad's a just, God, you're a, a, a just dad. He's going to have to do it. And so we've got this idea that we need to fear God rather than fear sin that's destroying us. Yes? But that was kind of the point I was trying to make when we talked about blood and the lamb. You know, that the, the God was actually testing us, you know, t- testing the Jews in the Old Testament with the lamb. That, you know, it's, it's, in fact, as I had talked to you before, is that, the lamb, oftentimes, in order to get a lamb without blemish, you'd have to separate it from the flock. That'd be a lamb that you would raise almost as a household pet. And then you'd have to take that lamb to, you know, to the temple, and you'd have to, you'd have to kill that lamb. He's talking about the, the purpose of the, the slaughtering of the animals was to bring conviction to the sinner and make a, repuls- a revulsion in the heart that as you take your animal that you've raised and you cut its throat, how it would just cut you to the quick and break your heart so sin becomes repulsive. That's an excellent point. Um, so first lens... I mean, first, first anchor is Jesus is the lens through which we see God. The second anchor, Jesus is the lens through which we understand the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not the lens through which we understand Jesus. And do you understand much of the bad theology we have in our church is because people take the, and study the Old Testament sanctuary service, create a theology out of what they've studied in the Old Testament, and then pigeonhole Jesus into that theology rather than studying Jesus and let Jesus be the light which, which then they understand the true meaning of the Old Testament. Ellen White didn't have this problem. She said that the gospel is the key which unlocks the mysteries of the Old Testament sanctuary service. The gospel is the key that unlocks it. And we must understand Jesus first, and that anchors us and keeps us from going over edges. Another anchor then, God's testable laws. God's testable laws are anchors. This includes, as we've talked, the law of liberty. Everybody know what the law of liberty is? Anybody not know? Anybody not know? Law of liberty. If you violate the law of liberty, love is always damaged. A desire to rebel will be instilled in the heart. Individuality is destroyed over time in a relationship like that. Love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. Law of liberty. Law of love. The law of nature. The law of beneficence we just read about. Law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. We actually are, are assim- we assimilate. Our neural circuits change. We rewire based on what we worship and admire. This is a law. It's testable. Laws of nature and science the, that we just talked about in health. And God never violates his law. Never. And so if you have a theology which has a construct which would have God in a position of violating his law, which some argue, well, he's God, he doesn't have to keep his law. Or it's, God can never break his law, so he can do whatever he wants. And then you have this arbitrary God. One of Satan's allegations against God is God was arbitrary. And so let's give some examples. There's some theologies where this happens. Hyper-Calvinism. Anybody know what hyper-Calvinism is? This is predestination. We don't have a choice. God predetermined before he created Adam and Eve, he looked down the course of time and predetermined for every person that would ever live, you, me, who would be saved and who would be lost. He he predetermined that some children should be abused. He predetermined that some would burn in hell forever. He predetermined, it doesn't matter what you do, God has already made all the choices for you, and you're you're predetermined for salvation or damnation. That's hyper-Calvinism. If that were true, what law, what law of God is being violated? The law of liberty is being violated. And what cannot exist in a world like that? Love cannot exist. You can test that theology based on this anchor, understanding the law of God. And when you understand the law of God, you know that, that theology cannot be true. But if you study the scriptures severed from his testable laws, from the laws of nature and science, then you can create this doctrine. You get a whole mass of people following and believing this thing. How about this one? God loves you. He's a God of love. He loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. But if you don't accept the blood payment of his son, he will be forced by justice to use his power to torture you and kill you for your unrepentant sins. Do you know that is taught in our church? Now, what testable law is being violated there? The law of love and the law of liberty both. Think, try this on your, hey, sweetheart, I love you. I love you so much, I, I sacrifice, I, give, I, I work extra hours to help pay for things you like, I, I, I go to the restaurants you like to eat at, not mine, because I sacrifice for you, because I love you. But if you don't love me, 
Well, I'll sneak in while you're sleeping and pour gas on you and light you on fire. I'll burn you for your for your. Dis- I'll beat you until you do. You know, if if your spouse were to say something like this to you, will love grow or will love immediately be crushed? See, love can't exist in an atmosphere like this. And these constructs are Satan's design to get power over us. His power is the father of lies. And as he gets us to have distorted God concepts, he destroys our capacity for knowing God. He destroys our capacity for loving each other. He incites fear and insecurity into our heart. Then we have a a whole layer of other false theology that has to come in to protect us from this God. Oh, if God's really like that, then what do I need? Well, I need to have my sins paid for. I need to have blood. I need to have Christ stand between me and the Father to hide me from the Father. All these other distortions come in. But it doesn't heal, it doesn't restore us back to godliness. There are many like this. And so I'm going to suggest we have anchors that can keep us. But when we divorce the three threads, Scripture from science and experience, when we divorce those three from each other, we either go over the edge of evolutionism, humanism, godlessness, we go over the edge of distorted theology, where we have these ugly distorted pictures of God. And when we bring all three back together, then we have anchors that we can push forward in the truth and not go over either edge. What do you all think? Do these anchors sound reasonable to you? Yeah. All righty. Any questions about any, any of that? In the second paragraph, we only got a couple of minutes left, but in the second paragraph, it talks about the evidences. Uh, let's see, the second paragraph says how often. Um, how often um, folks let, je- uh, let their own jealousy blind them to what should be obvious. The evidence that Christ gave should be uh, should be more than convincing is what it says. And my, my question to you is, what is the most persuasive evidence that Christ gave that should persuade you? Is it the miracles that he performed? His selfless giving. Yeah, understanding in the reality. Understanding that he wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a human being. He was fully man, but also fully God. When you understand that and understood he had access to divine power to put a stop to it at any second with a thought, and then you see him doing this, no one can take my life, I give it freely. That then has significant meaning. So one of Satan's, again, distortions is to diminish Christ from fully God to something less than that, who was a helpless thief on the cross and really couldn't do anything. And so we see a nice martyr, a nice human martyr who gave himself. Big deal. It's a huge deal when you recognize that he had all power at his disposal, as John 13 tells us. It's all hand somewhere. Yes. In that same paragraph, it talks about miracles, healing, and casting out demons. There will be someone who comes in the future who will be doing all that. Exactly. Exactly. There's there's an imposter coming who's going to perform miracles, cast out demons, even make it appear the dead are raised. But he cannot impersonate God's character of love in the heart. And that being who comes will speak melodious words. He will start, Satan's always does, with conversion. But then he will move to coercion and... It, no one can buy or sell, say him as the mark. With, and, and he will say things like, I, guys, I really don't, but in order to be just, in order to be just, I have to, I have to bring just penalties to bear, and I've given you every opportunity to repent, but if you don't, then we, we're going to need to imprison, and then we're going to need to put the death penalty on. This is what's going to happen from this being of light. You're going to see that is not the character of Christ. However, most people who accept this other view of theology are going to say, this is our God. We have waited for him. That's what's going to happen. Okay, and in closing then, last thing. Because I told Christy I would cover this in class today. Jealousy is bad. It's evil. Then how do we make sense of scriptures that said, do not worship any other God for the Lord, uh, except for the Lord, whose name is Jealous. Our God is a jealous God. Because he loves us, he wants to how do we make sense of that? Yes. God, I thought about that this week, that very thing. And in my mind, the way I see it is that for me, if I'm jealous, sometimes it's in a very selfish way where I'm looking out for myself. But for God, he's just jealous for my good. He's jealous to take care of me. He doesn't want me to be outside of his path because he just wants me to be living an abundant life and to have every good thing. Did you all hear that, everybody? That, that God is, there's, there, we can be jealous because of some selfish need we want, or God can be jealous for our health and welfare. Let me uh, share with you the... Uh, the def- dictionary definition for jealousy, and there's three definitions. First definition, 
intolerance of rivalry or unfaithfulness, or disposed to suspect rivalry. So the suspicious, jealous, can't tolerate anybody who would do something as good as you. That's definition number one. Definition number two, a hostile toward a rival or one believed to enjoy an advantage. So we have this hostile attitude toward people who may compete against us. And three, is either of those define God? No. no, how about this one? Vigilance in guarding a possession. God is vigilant in guarding his children. He is jealous for our health. He's jealous for our welfare. He's jealous that we don't get injured, that we don't get deceived, that we don't get eternally lost. So when we talk about the jealousy of God, our God is a jealous God. He's a vigilant God who wants to protect and heal us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your vigilance for your love, for your passion, for the truth of who you are. We pray that you will send your spirit to enlighten our mind. May the distorted God concepts be removed. Give us the ability to articulate clearly this message. And may we anchor ourselves to the truth as Jesus revealed. May we anchor ourselves to your immutable law, the laws of, 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 of nature and the laws of love, that we can uh, bring together the threads of evidence into a true, whole, wholesome experience in your kingdom, we pray in your holy name. Amen.